Hello, and welcome to a very special Notacast podcast, a podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. Oh no, not here. I'm your host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work-related reasons. Soon as he is back, we will be resuming the regular weekly podcast with A Storm of Swords. Until then, I'll be putting out weekly episodes with rotating guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as audio and text posts of my own, which will be coming soon. And I'm very happy to welcome my guest for this episode. Micah, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. We're going to be talking about a cherished topic, I think, for both of us, a real source of nostalgia for me, the fantasy book series Redwall by Brian Jakes, the the, uh, fantasy series for kids about a bunch of anthropomorphic mice and rats and hedgehogs and otters and shrews and a bunch of other assorted forest animals uh, carrying out their alternately peaceful and warlike little lives uh, in a series of rousing adventure tales, what Brian Jakes calls the kind of yarn you used to be able to go pick up in the library. I'm imitating his accent probably horribly. And this was uh, this was your idea, but as soon as uh, you, you came up with it, I seized on it because I just I have a, a lot a lot of fond memories of, of reading and rereading those until the books basically disintegrated. I was actually wanting to at first do an episode on like minor characters and whatnot because everyone who's on Twitter knows that that's my brand. But Absolutely. then I, I was reminded. I was actually reminded by uh, Chloe. Uh, from Girls Gone Canon, that we both liked Redwall. And I was like, hey, we should do a subject on that because there's going to be a movie and TV show coming out for it within the next couple of years. And that's something I'm going to be looking forward to. I'm very curious to see how that goes because uh, one of the things I like about, about Brian Jakes is he was kind of a curmudgeon about things and didn't like the video games. And, and uh, you know, he didn't want board games made of Redwall. He just very much liked, liked his stories. But, you know, especially with him gone, uh, the, the, the tide moves. And I'm curious to see what, what, what they make of that for sure. Yeah. But so let's start with uh, let's start with the basics for anyone uh, kind of unfamiliar with the series. So the author Brian Jakes uh, it's a is a French name, but as he said, it was it was anglicized uh, for his family. He's from Northern England. He was born in Liverpool in 1939, uh, roughly the same age as the Beatles. Actually, there's one of his teachers is the English teacher who inspired him. Also taught a couple of the Beatles, who were also from Liverpool. And so he was kind of uh, kind of between generations, and again have kind of had that curmudgeon aspect because he's. He's obviously too young to have fought in the world wars, which shaped a lot of people of that of that era and, and that part of the world. But also, he's a little older than the baby boomers, so he was never he was never like a you know a cool rock and roll type. He's kind of kind of out of time, and I think that might have kind of inspired a lot of the writing you see you see in a series like this. He said when he was a kid, he read a lot of detective stories that came over uh, from America and also from England, of course, of course, Sherlock Holmes stories. The Wind in the Willows was a huge inspiration from his childhood and childhood, and I think you can see that carrying over to Redwall. One uh, anecdote he brings up a lot is that when he was 10, he wrote a story about a bird cleaning a crocodile's teeth, which feels like a very kind of like rolled doll kind of story, and that his teacher refused to believe it was by him because it was just too good. And then when he, he didn't admit that it wasn't by him, the teacher caned him, which I just think is the most like hysterical, awful, stereotypical English teacher thing to do. Like, you can't possibly be this talented. I will smash your dreams down, foolish child. Uh, clearly, clearly Pink Floyd's The Wall was too kind on the English educational system. So from there, Brian Jakes became a sailor in his early adulthood, but he, he tired of the roaming life and wanted to settle down back in Liverpool. I think you can see a clear inspiration for that still in his books, though, in the Red Bull books. They're very oh, yeah. detailed about ships and very full of the adventurous spirit and moving on over the next horizon. So you can still see that life. Well, also, I think you can see the ache for home. Yeah, you, you can see both of those. You can see both of those throughout every single one of the books. There is always a quest and there is always the subplot at Redwall Abbey. That's a good point. There's always like he's always cutting back and forth between the two. 
and to establish that kind of importance, which I think is a, a big part of the kind of the myths and legends and fairy tales that probably inspired him is the going out in the world and coming back home. There's always the circular journey with, you know, Odyssey, obviously, but ton, tons of stories that, that work in that same vein. And uh, specifically, uh, Brian Jakes was taking up a lot of odd jobs when he got back to Liverpool, and he wrote Redwall for the children at a school for the blind, where he was delivering milk, and that he was looking at a lot of the stories available to them, especially stories that were just available in kind of early Braille, so there wasn't a huge uh, range of options. And a lot of them he thought were really just kind of depressing, especially for kids he thought needed kind of some some uplift and escapism in their lives, that it was just very kind of droll, depressing English stories about, you know, divorce and whatnot. And it was just like, they need some magic in their lives, he thought. And he specifically said he wanted to counter that angst and help out blind kids specifically with a lot of sensations. He said that, you know, he wanted, he was thinking about these blind kids as an audience. I want to really describe the smells and the sounds and put them in this world. And I think you can really see that in Redwall, especially the early books, that they're very, oh, yeah. very, you know, some people would say overly descriptive, but very, very descriptive they about are. Like every little room and every little detail. It's apt that he named um, the second book in the series Moss Flower after the main forest that's next to the Abbey, for those who don't know. It's aptly named because it is in that book where he really gives you the feel of the forest. You know every tree, every leaf, every smell and sound. He achieves it perfectly in there. It's one of my favorite of his books. Yeah, I think you can, that, that kind of place setting is essential in fantasy. And, uh, you know, obviously, if you're, if you're writing for a younger audience, you don't necessarily need to, to go into that much depth. And I'm sure there was stuff that went over my head or, of course, like mythological stuff that went over my head when I was reading it as a little kid. But that it really helped me visualize, which was strong for me at that age. And that Brian Jakes has talked about that he as advice for writers. He says that you want to just like imagine a room and just really paint it down to the details and don't leave anything out when you're writing about it. Maybe you go back and cut it later if it gets too long. But like that's a good uh, a model of writing for him. And his uh, his former English teacher, the one that also taught, taught a couple of the Beatles, uh, showed it to some publishers without even his knowledge, without Brian Jakes' knowledge, and they were kind of off to the races from there. And uh, the Redwall books, he wrote them consistently for a while. He was saying he would like spend four months out of a year writing them, kind of deliver to his publisher and, and go from there. Over 20 million sold by the time uh, of his death. They were uh, translated into 10 different languages. Something I always really liked about it, uh, like probably my like my favorite the artist from childhood Ford was uh, Bill Watterson, the guy who uh, wrote, and draw, wrote and drew Calvin and Hobbes. And I, I love Calvin and Hobbes just on its own merits, but I also just loved his model. He was very, like, very curmudgeonly about being like, I draw Calvin and Hobbes all by myself and I don't merchandise and I don't, like, oversee a team the way the guy who draws Garfield does it. They had a whole feud, amusingly. And Brian Jakes was kind of the same way in that he, like, he designed the covers and when there was an animated series of Redwall, he worked very closely with it and did, like, little recorded little intros for each episode. And it was just, he really liked the handmade kind of personal stamp and that this was kind of a, a gift he was working on. He didn't want it to to turn into the semblance of the, to, you know, he didn't want it to feel like he was just grifting kids. And I think that might go back to kind of the, the origins of he was trying to make this for kids he knew. And then, yes, sadly, he died about 10 years ago. He died in 2011 at the age of 71, survived by a couple children and grandchildren. There was, uh, I believe it was just one book, might have been two, but one book of the series published just, uh, posthumously. Just just, just, just one. one book and one of uh, at least one of his uh, sons was involved in the audiobook makings and provided one of the voices. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love that. I love the uh, you know when the when the family involvement can be great. Yeah. In, a, in an author, there's of course the traditions of that with the, with the Tolkien family and 
you know, Frank Herbert's family to you know, more or less artistic success, but at least it's still, there's still the family connection there. And um, the, yeah, there's, the, there's the stereotype of the author who's not a good family man because they're, you know, their mind is in their books all the time. And I think that is true to a very large extent. But uh, Brian Jick said specifically he didn't like the, the image of just the author spending all the time in the garden and that he wanted to spend a lot of time with his family. So I'm, I'm glad he... He got that, and he got to come back to Liverpool after all his wanderings. It seems like, you know, obviously it's from the outside. I didn't, I didn't know the dude. I don't know anyone who knew the dude, but he seemed like he led a, a satisfying life. So good for Brian Jakes. Good for him. So those are the basics. That's kind of the the, the rough timeline. I read while first book was 1986. As I said, he died around 2011, so roughly 25 year span. So why why did this? book series speak to us because I, I don't know about you but i went through a lot of books when i was a kid 95 percent of which i could not remember if you put a gun to my head because a lot of you know a lot of children's fiction is, is just there to occupy a couple hours yeah so what what is why does red wall stand out what is why, why did red wall stand out to you when you were a kid i i didn't get into a lot of fantasy reading when i was a kid due to living a kind of more sheltered life my family used to be very christian so there were a lot of stuff that I couldn't get into because of, well, you could probably guess what the reasons were. But of course I read Lord of the Rings and I read Harry Potter. And probably around the same time as I started reading Harry Potter, I also got into Redwall, which of course had to be read before me and then approved. And of course the first <laughs> book has the most religious tones in the series. Uh, Very which, strongly. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Yeah, and then those fade throughout the series go, and as uh, Brian leans more into the uh, fantasy of it all. But I think that I think uh, him leaning into the fantasy of it all is what drew me in because as a kid, I was seeing all these cool things like this mouse goes to meet with this gigantic owl captain who threatens to eat him, but then sends him to go fight a snake and get a magic sword. And I listened to the audiobooks multiple times. And for those who don't know, the audiobooks for Redwalls are really unique. Because he has a full... I remember those. He has a full voice cast behind them of, like, 15 different voice actors per book. And there's, like, you know, only 20 books. Of course, of course. Yeah, and, like, as I said, his one of his... At least one of his children, I believe his name is Mark, voices some of the main characters and even voiced Matthias in the first book. I've always loved stories with anthropomorphic characters as a kid, which I think it's mostly because you can do stuff with anthropomorphic characters that you can't do with uh, with human people, like ha yeah. like having the uh, skin of your lower <laughs> jaw torn off and then hiding it with a piece of chainmail. <laughs> right. It gets metal. No kidding. It it goes that way a lot. Like uh, there's one scene in the first book where you have the. Um, Badger Mother Constance is trapped in a fishnet. She gets out of it and then wraps up a ferret in it and then slams the ferret against the wall until he dies. Right? Like, you can imagine the, how that sounds. Like, it's, a, yeah. it's like something... I, I think, like, I think Jason does that one of the Friday the 13th movies. He, like, grabs a kid in, like, a sleeping bag and hits them against the tree. Yeah. And yeah, that, um... That, 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 that combination of, like, of, of the, the sweet, innocent setting and the the extremely specific details of the battles is something that, that very much stood out to, to me as a kid. It pulls you in. There's there's all sorts of, like, you got all the food that you could want. There's way more, way more food. If you think George R. R. Martin does a lot of food, that's <laughs> Sweet Summer Children. No kidding. No. 
uh, food, music, and even in the audiobooks, uh-huh. they went all out with the music as well and included instrumentals. Um, that the battles were all really great. And the world just felt so lived in. And I just really, really loved that as a kid. And even now. It was a it was a place you could sit inside. And yeah, Redwall was my kind of gateway drug for fantasy and for kind of obsessive reading in general is something I had to kind of dominate my day doing. I already was tearing through any kind of book I could get my tiny hands on more just to kind of occupy my brain and time. But Redwall was the first time I... I can remember consciously thinking about a story beyond just the direct input to my eyeballs. Like first time I, I cared about who wrote something, like the, the the author's name meant something to me. It was the first time I got a sense of backstory that mattered, that there was information I had to know about that wasn't being made explicit to me. And I had to kind of put together into a structure in my brain. And I got caught up in the, the, the drama of the, the good characters dying and the, the last second escapes and the mysterious historical reveals by Torchlight. There's a lot of that. Oh, this is, there's a scroll or there's a marking on this wall. If I'd been born in an earlier generation, I would have been reading Edgar Rice Burroughs' adventure stories. I would have been reading pirate stories by Robert Louis Stevenson. I eventually kind of, you know, came upon those. But uh, the kind of the mainline stuff for me, the stuff that was coming out while I was a kid were these books. And they, they very much tapped into that that kind of seafaring spirit that that I think Brian Jakes experienced in his youth and that I think uh, was was just a very kind of old school kind of storytelling by the time he actually started writing these books. And so there was kind of old fashioned appeal to them. And they yeah. can see that, yeah, in the, in, in the endless, endless food porn, which I love. And something that uh, came up in interviews, I was reading a couple in prep for this episode. And he mentioned that really what that is about for him is that he, you know, he grew up rationing during during World War II when he was a kid. So when it comes to his own writing, it's just all the loving details of all the food he couldn't have. Like he talks about like being a kid, like during the Blitz the and during the Battle of Britain and like paging through his mom's, his grandma's Victorian cookbook and like, oh, look at these, all these desserts, everything I can't have. Yeah. So when it came time for his own books, it's like, here's, I'm going to fill this table and you're going to hear about it for the whole chapter. Oh, yeah. How many times do we get the trifles? The trifles, the cordials, the, you know. The tarts. Oh, we caught a fish in the pond. The scones, a couple times they do that. <laughs> all of it. All of it. And it's just, it's, uh, it reminds me of um, of uh, Lord of the Rings for sure in terms of the hobbits and how much yeah. they love their food. And there's the the great line from early on. And I think it's the, actually it's not even in the story proper. It's in the prologue when Tolkien's talking about hobbits. And he says that really the reason they love good food and good times so much is because when they need to, they can do without it. So when they have it, they celebrate it. And I think it's that same like kind of lingering English World War II mentality of remembering when rationing was a huge thing. It's like, oh, we when we get good food now, we're all about it because we remember not having it. Yeah. And that's, yeah, food. The, the food scenes in Redwall are great because it's just, it establishes this communal warmth that gets all the characters together. It allows for like these friendly little rivalries because there's always like, you know, I'm going to eat more than you or I'm going to throw this food, you know. And yeah. all these, all the, any little squabbles that are happening come up at dinner. And what I also like it is, so the main uh, main setting, of course, is Redwall Abbey. You know, it's this wonderful place of peace and plenty where all these animals live together. And that's where a lot of the great food scenes are set. But it's interesting that food is one of the main ways it contrasts with the other main location, which is the mountain of Salamandastron, where the badger lords and their uh, hair buddies live. And uh, the, the food is always described there as something like plain but filling. Like they're always just eating like oat porridge and like yeah. a thing of bread because they're like they're warrior monks, basically. There's like very different lifestyle. And he shows that with the food, which is something I like. Yeah. And I reckon you would find throughout the... Uh... I reckon if we re- reread the series, we would definitely find instances when, like, 
Red Walls put under siege of when they had to ration or when they're when they have to eat up less on food. We would find instances yeah. of that put in there. I can certainly probably name a few copies that are on my shelf right now. That would include that. That's a good point. <laughs> That's true. There's all those siege mechanics they get into and they have to start teasing them out because that yeah that, those 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 battle scenes there's like there was just real strategy in those books which is amazing was, to me because yeah. there, there doesn't have to be for the audience necessarily even for the older like even you know uh the, the pre-teen audience of those books like you don't you don't need to get that super detailed with it you right, can yeah, probably convey like, the story there's to like them small things it. where they have like the um trees outside the wall they make sure that they cut the trees down near enough to the wall so they don't the, the um the enemy animals or the vermins, as they're called in the books, climb over, which due to neglect in one of the books, they do actually do that. So that's a neat little thing that doesn't have to be in yeah. there, but it is and it's realistic. There's always like, you know, you get the very specific sense of like there are these many gates at Redwall. And here's what's going to like, you know, here's the here's the one gate that's probably going to be a problem because we keep mentioning it. And yeah, there's the, the, the nature outside Redwall becomes a big deal. There's the logistics of getting outside into the forest and finding allies there and how much food are we going to have to bring and it's very it's very specific and it makes it 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 made it feel very like you know i don't you know i don't i didn't care about things being authentic when i was that age so that's not it but it felt it get it got into the immersion that you were talking about earlier that i could really it felt like oh my food's running out i'm starting to feel tired what's going to happen next and very much setting up for the, the kind of the the quest narrative stuff as, as lord of the rings and and even at a more visceral level, like the there's great, you know, everyone gets their own specific battle cry in in, in Redwall. No oh, one yes. has, you know, every, the, the shrews have their own battle cry, and the hares have their own one. Eulalia, which I think is based on a Norse thing, I think so. And the yeah. red, Eulalia and the Redwallers have to come up with their own. Yeah, but that's uh, they're always shouting it when they go into battle, and that's the that's the kind of kind of glorious nerdy stuff you love, oh, and yeah. it get, gets your heart racing. Everything is just so so specific and detailed and earnest in that way, and that's that's just stuff stuff I love. And so yeah, yep. most of the most of the good guys are of course the the small and defenseless sort of animals. He makes it mice, he said, because mice are small and have to be clever. Yeah, hedgehogs. And they get their little friends. You got otters. Hedgehogs, right? Otters are kind of right, like exactly. the jocks. <laughs> that's that's true. Otters otters are like I just picture like Jason Momoa. Yeah, like that's, otters. That's the otters. <laughs> That's the otters, like, it's, it's always emphasized that, like, the otters are the only ones with muscles, and everyone else is, like, very kind of, like, either skinny or kind of pudgy, yep. and, like, the otters just roll in with, like, six packs. They're like, always, they're absolute bros, every time, and I love them for Emerging it. Emerging in slow motion from the water. <laughs> that's basically exactly. every single book with the otters. It's, it's great. It's great. It's yeah, awesome. It's like, yeah, it's like, a Skipper of Otters is here. He's going to be, he's going to do the only athletic thing in the book, because, you know, the rest of us can't. Yeah. That's, that's, that's always it. So it's always doing flips. Um, Exactly, exactly. And then you have the, the, the shrews are always arguing and having like frantic little politics outside, which is which is adorable, breaking into little groups. Um and then you have the yeah, the the slightly slightly larger, slightly more predatory ish animals end up being on the bad side and they have you know, they have names like Red Tooth and, you know, Cheese Thief and they have always have X's and Z's in their names. Something that was always very clear to me as a kid. And now looking back was clearly a, a deliberate move on Jake's part was there's always like one or two of the bad guys who, who go over to the good side or just leave. Like every, every book that happens, there's like one counselor who goes, hey, maybe the, maybe my side is ridiculous and I should like help the good guys. Or there's a couple like lowly bad guys who go, ah, our leadership sucks. We should get the hell out of here. Yeah, there's always those That's, who they, they don't they're not like completely evil. They're just like not as bad or they all just exactly yeah 
they're just they're they're just you know they 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 didn't know what the, what the full concept was going to be, and then they piece it. They, out, they which were along for the ride. That's him trying to trying to keep, I think, his his audience from going too too bloodthirsty against against yeah. the bad yeah. the bad species. And that's again the Tolkien thing. There's there's the bit in Lord of the Rings where the men the men from the south who are working for the dark lord they encounter them and there's a battle and sam sees one of them who dies and wonders man i wonder if he even wanted to be here maybe he just wanted to stay home tending his own garden like me and his leaders made him come here and it's a nice little moment of empathy so those are always good especially for kids yeah like you know obviously it's a kid's book you're gonna have bad guys but like good to let kids know like hey maybe you know yeah in um give people a second chance maybe your first read is not necessarily going to be accurate yeah i remember from one of the later books you had the small um while everyone was away questing you had the small subplot in redwall <laughs> uh, as right. you do like you do and there and they <laughs> they have the band of villains not the band of villains but the band of the uh, like rats and weasels were sitting outside redwall and they managed to get in at one point but at that point in the story all of them except the leader are just done <laughs> With having to put up with teapots being thrown on their heads and just things being thrown at them. them. So they basically leave him until just him doing the bad stuff. Which, you know, actually involves killing off one of the um, endearing little innocent boy mice, which was sad. No. But yeah. But yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's, that's realistic at that point. Just, just, just peace out. Just leave. Yeah, that's, that's the fun parts when the, when the villains just start, start falling apart and turning on each other. And then, yeah, you have the, so yeah, you have the at Salamander Strand, you kind of have the, 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 the glowering badger lords who are kind of the most emo of the good guys, I guess. Yeah. The badgers always seem to have like some kind of vaguely Shakespearean thing going on where yeah. it's like they're mad the, at their the badgers, dead dad. The badgers. Or it's like. Um, Brian does the yeah. badgers where he will have them as these humble, heroic figures until they fight. And then they're brutal and terrifying. <laughs> And then there's yeah, then there's there's a couple of them that are like legitimately like, like oh they might like kill their friends like yeah, we might have they to just do something can't about tell these the guys. At that point. Right, they get they're the they get berserk, um, and they like you know they're the ones who have to deal with prophecies a lot of the time, uh, even in the later books. As you say, it gets a little less less Christian as we go, but the the, the badgers do have some some prophecy and and prodigal son stuff to deal with because the there's the the main family of badgers seems to have kind of endless like quest towards Salamandastron narrative where down through the generations one of them will have to feel the need to go off towards the fiery mountain and kind of to take over and rule there and they they their job you know roughly defined is guard the coast from all the pirates and whatnot that tend to come ashore and their servants are are the hares who even though the badgers are like the glowering doom-faced ones the the hares are basically comic relief even though they're badasses they tend to go around being very exaggeratedly british and saying what what a lot and basically, basically being cartoons, and they're they're, yeah, they're delightful. They're very and cartoons. Yep, yeah. we love them, and they are also very badass a lot of the time. Like Basil Stag here is probably the most well known because he's from the first book, and he's very much sure, the comic relief. But when he's when he needs to be called upon to uh, put up a fight, he will do so, and he will kick ass. And Jake has said that basically the hairs are for him, like like young RAF fighters, like you know. Yeah, stiff upper lip, young guys fighting, fighting in World War II. That's that's kind of who he, he pictures the hares as. One bit that uh, is interesting that you alluded to before is the uh, nature of religion in this universe, because you know it is an abbey that they all live in, yep. and they have and like you know they're sometimes the referred to. There's a church down the road, and there's you know there you know people or characters are referred to as friar or brother or sister, and they're wearing you know they're wearing habits. 
but it's not like there are crosses or yeah, you know, direct no crosses, Sunday no prayer. Jesus. So it's Even it's just it's an interesting little little bit of world building. And the, obviously, uh, you know, yeah, go yeah. Ahead. In the uh, first book, you get a lot of stuff like that, and you also get a lot of things that uh, Brian Jakes, who I would classify as a gardener writer, wanted to do, but sure. then decided it didn't work for the next books. Like you have a horse and a huge cart in the first book. That never appears uh-huh. again. Nope. No horses. None allowed. They, it just didn't work with how the uh, animals he chose to use were there in the world. Because they were all like tiny little mice and little rats. And the biggest ones would be the badgers. And as the series goes on, you get like mainly just the abbots and the abbesses. You don't, I don't remember a lot of brothers showing up later in the series and then friars now that starts to fade yeah friar basically just means cook bye right at that point exactly yeah and it's it's it it it, it has the feel of uh like the disney robin hood like the 60s disney robin hood where the it's the anthropomorphic animals and robin hood's a fox and so on the best robin hood and of course of course (laughs) a classic and it's like you know uh, you got the like friar tucks wearing like the robe in that one but like you know you don't think of him as like worshiping jesus because it's, nope. it's anthropomorphic animals so that would be strange that would just be weird um, and what animal it is would jesus? be weird and <laughs> exactly so the same vibe is here like even though even when i like like learned what those terms like a term like abby meant in real life i like and that never felt weird to me because it was so clearly of this universe and because uh jakes calls redwall a place of peace and comradeship and that is like redwall just feels like like a uh, like a place you go to relax really like almost you know like a spa no but it feels like a like a, a place you like a retreat like a monastic kind of retreat almost and like less even about spirituality and more just about like getting away from almost like the shire getting away from bad yeah. things everywhere else in your world yeah it's just um, even, yeah it's very very shire-esque which uh that i mean the shire could have provided some inspiration for brian as to kind of where he wanted sure. to go with redwall but yeah, there's definitely a sense of, like, home and comfort to Redwall Abbey, which is a really great feeling. Why, When Redwall Abbey becomes in danger, it gets so, so tense in the narrative there. Exactly. You don't want to say it's spoiled. It's like when Winterfell is, is overrun at the end of the Clash of Kings and, like, the greenhouse is broken and the water's pouring out. And it's, like, physically, like, viscerally upsetting, even though it's, you know, it's a building. But it still feels like someone got hurt there because you're so attached to Winterfell as a place, and the same thing happens, yeah, and 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 Redwall when it's endangered, and the yeah the one the one little bit of spirituality, as you say, comes in the first book, which posits Martin the Warrior as this like saint like figure who's guarding Redwall, even though he's long dead, and the main character Matthias is basically him reborn. Is is the, yep. the implication as you go through that book? Kind of because like he's. He turned his name into an anagram, and it's like he's getting Martin's sword and communicating with him in his dreams. And it's like, you know, it's it's like this, it's intensely Arthurian, obviously, because it's like King Arthur is the the saint who will one day restore England to its greater glory, blah, 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 and getting the sword. So back you go to the sword and the stone. And so there, there, there is that clear kind of sense of mythos, even that he fights a snake in that first book. So there's some obvious uh, Christian symbolism there. And then, yeah, it's like you know, you don't you don't you don't get a lot of Garden of Edens and Cain and Abel's and Noah's Ark popping up in the later books. So pretty clearly, this is something he kind of kind of started to back away from. And you even get 
Martin himself, you even get uh, a book about him later in the series. Yeah, you get uh, three. In which you're following him around as just, you know, he's 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 impressive, but he's just a guy. So he's he's no longer kind of the saintly figure just in people's dreams and stained glass windows. Right. I, I think that when that... I, I think that that may have, like, brought about a sense of, like... It's not that he had to be super powerful in order to become a special person. He was actually just a dude who did a lot of really great things, and that made him. And he was just any dude who did a lot of great things, and that just made him great, greater in the eyes of people who came after him. Which For I, sure. Which I think is that... quite powerful. Absolutely. And like a lot of, you know... Like a lot of saintly figures in the real world, he didn't necessarily envision the institution that would follow him. And the no. first the first book kind of like pseudo fa- pseudo frames Martin the Warrior as the founder of Redwall, which isn't like really who he is when you get into like his specific story. He's kind of, you know, it started with his generation, but he was just like one of many yeah. people in the area there, there and not, not of, even like the main. There was a lot of founders and a lot of pieces that brought Redwall in together. Right, which yeah, that's I think that's a that's a good way to expand the mythology. And uh, Martin the Warrior ends up kind of more being a, a lone wolf kind of dude whose mythology gets built over time. Yeah, he's cool. He's cool, but okay. So like, so we've that's the what we kind of like about it on the whole. So to as we said, there's a lot of specific books, a lot of specific characters, and I know you of course love minor characters so much. I do. So like, yes. Yeah, so, so starting off with the, with the first book, the first book I think is still by far the most widely known. The audio of book of that one is was fairly uh fairly popular, and that's yeah that introduces the the abbey and the the the, the threats from the outside from a, a like a rat with a whip tail named Clooney the Scourge. It sets out kind of a lot of the basics for the series. Oh yeah, it's I consider I'd consider the first book Redwall a classic, just because of its um. A lot of people don't know it, but when, it's one of those things to where when you do notice it and you do start to find it, it is something that pops up in little places everywhere. And it did a lot in terms of, like, uh, with big-scale fantasy and with, uh, like, am- doing this stuff with anthropomorphic characters. I think it's a pretty big thing in that regard. Because uh, there's, there's other series that I've read that do anthropomorphic animal characters like that, uh, which I'm a big fan of, but and it's possible they could have been like inspired by Redwall. But yeah, the first book itself remains quite dear to my heart because of it's what got me into this whole thing. And since I've listened to it a whole load of times and reread it so many times, I can wager that it's how I remember character names so well. <laughs> Is that right? Just because you have to keep track of all the little the 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 people running in out of Redwall, and there's like and something I always love is like there's always like the enemy army in these books always have so many lieutenants that you have to keep track of. Yep. Like there's always so many scheming bad guys that are like, I want to be the second in command. No, I'm going to be the second in command. Like every book has that subplot, and you got to remember who all those guys are. So yeah. I'll bet I'll bet that helped you with. with I, character I think it matrices. helps a little. I'll bet. Yeah, no kidding. And yeah, Redwall, like it's, I remember that first book, it's because I think it's the first one and he's still getting a handle on things and there's that spiritual angle. It's kind of the most overwrought in terms of the prose, like when he's killing the snake, it's like, he struck in the name of this person and this person and this person it goes on and on and on. It's it's very, like very intense, but it is also the most kind of like, yeah, directing that spiritual appeal to the audience and it is very rousing and trying to be very, very kind of mythical. And yet it is funny that there are, 
allusions to humanity, as you mentioned, with the horse cart. Like, that never happens again or anything even close to it, because I think yeah. you realize that that destroys my entire world, because why on earth would there be a mountain with badgers in it and a little abbey right. in the woods? Yeah, if, they if humanity never do is that down again. the road. There's like a barn that appears in the first book that uh, a wild cat lives in. And is, right. is that like a barn that the animals made? Or is that a barn that people made? If so, I have questions, but yeah. yeah. Tell me about the scale. Right, because that's like, yeah, you could tell a whole you could tell a whole other stories of anthropomorphic mice in the human world. Like, you know, we have plenty of those stories too, where they're like, you know, your mice characters are running around kitchens and running around the docks and trying to avoid humans. But like, you know, that's that's uh, Red Redwall was supposed to be uh uh, I think, as he intended, a little world unto itself, like yeah. you know, little Iron Age story with their own their own little civilizations and their own little history and their own little kings. And Redwall also established the the really epic length of these books because it's easy to forget before Harry Potter that kids' books, sensibly enough, were short because that's you know you're 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 thinking of the t- the typical attention span of children. But if you hook kids in, they'll just you know. They'll start the book at 9 a.m. and you come back to them at 6 p.m. and they're still reading the damn book. So you can make you can make kids' books long if it's if it's enough of a if you're exciting them every few pages. And that's the Redwall model. So yeah, I think that Redwall is like that first book is like 800 pages long, which in the I, 80s. I think so. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> right, take a look. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it's somewhere the in there. The bookshelf all by itself. Yeah, and that's you know that was that was unheard of at the time. I used to get the hardcovers from the library, yeah. and they were like a uh, Storm of Swords size hardcovers. They were big. They're big. They've uh, there's a there's a lot. Like you say, there tends to be they tend to be two handers in terms of plot. There tends to be the home plot and the quest plot at least. Sometimes you have other subplots going on as well, or you like you're checking in with the villain and and their you know their little plots too, which is always fun. And um, always fun. Uh, I'll get I'll mention a uh, Legend of Luke a little later, but that's when that jumps around in time, so you have to kind of set two different uh, stories up. So there's, there's they're they're very they they're very large and take their time. And they they have they have the classic maps, the maps I loved so much as a kid, oh, the yeah, fantasy and sci-fi maps. maps at the beginning. Always loved, yeah. That's that was also very very influential for my little brain yeah. in terms of uh, loving this kind of story because it really helped me visualize it, and it it made quest narratives not boring to be, to me because it's not just like an endless series of steps they're taking. I can look, oh, they're here, okay. So and oh oh no, here's what's yeah, next. Yeah, those maps were what, great at that. Even though the um, like in later books, you would have these places that. It's questionable where they would actually fit on the world map, <laughs> but... Started to fudge it a little bit, but, true. But true. at that point, you're well aware of where the abbey is, what's surrounding it. The um, There's a church down the road, and there's a ditch between the church and the abbey. Then Salamidastron's way over on the other coast, and then you have a forest on the, yep, on the north and uh, east side of the abbey. That's basically what you need to know for that stuff. So the extra things are just kind of out in the world somewhere in gestures vaguely. Exactly. You can sculpt it from there. The uh, there's, a, there, there's a couple of books go out to islands far out in the Western Sea. The Bellmaker, I think, is the one that goes to the far southern kingdom. Yeah. That they just invent. Um, that they, you can just have down there. Yeah. Uh, so, it's, yeah, there's but very much... Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah, so like, you know, obviously that's, uh, you know, it's bite-sized compared to something like Middle Earth, but it definitely got the got the lust in me for that kind of that kind yeah. of plotting and that kind of mapping and having that, again, like the sense I, I didn't, you know, I was, that was the first time I was like, 
thinking of oh someone put information in this book extra for me to keep in mind that yeah was, you know that there, was, that like, was a big deal for me there's like extra little bits where um like you'll have pirates and corsairs will mention these random places that sound really cool mm-hmm. that you'll never get to see or you'll get the um well, there's a flashback scene in one of the really later books that sounds like there's some badgers that were living on a kind of norway-ish kind of kind of land and he got like stranded and sent away and he landed in um the island that Redwall is on, which is kind of like Britain. Which More or less, yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I pretty much imagine it as Britain. In terms of like how Meyer characters go, I've always had a love for the character Methuselah, who's a mouse that appears in the first book. He is uh, Brother Methuselah, so he's like one of the um, kind of priests that's around there. And he is, he has a lot of similarities to Maester Eamon from A Song of Fire. The more sure. I thought about him, as he is like, the old wise mentor who doesn't last until the end, unfortunately. Right. But he um, does a lot of like the same uh, framework to Matthias as what Maester Eamon does to Jon Snow. Except that Matthias isn't as brooding. Nowhere near as brooding. <laughs> Matthias is a who way is? more optimistic mouse than, than Jon Snow. But um, Well, his girlfriend doesn't die. Yeah, so his girlfriend doesn't die. Imagine. Instead, she throws a pot of stew over the rat's heads. Badass. She's great. Cornflower is great, but yeah, Methuselah is like, he'll be my minor character shout out of the day. Classic, uh, classic old mentor character. Um, Classic. Never gets old. He, uh, (laughs) now, if I recall correctly, he gets killed by the fox who the the young there's the, there's a young fox who shows up in Redwall and this is again this is the kind of like like lore and and stuff in this series that I wasn't used to yet so it just started blowing my mind so the first book has like a couple foxes who get into Redwall and one of them the younger one ends up stealing a bunch of stuff and killing Methuselah on his way out yep and then he he runs into the snake that's hanging out and you assume he's dead cuz the snake tends to kill everyone it comes across and then you get to what was probably my favorite uh, book in the series when I was a kid, which is the the third book, Madame Mayo, which is takes place a little bit after Red Wall, and Matthias has grown up and has his own son, Madame Mayo, and you know obviously is having trouble raising him, like heroes tend to do with their kids, and then this weird, mysterious like band of circus performers comes to Red Wall to put on a show, and they're led by a mysterious fox with this patterned mask on his face, and they put on like this this really creepy still weird like psychedelic performance and everyone's going all woozy and the fox is chanting and he's drunk their drinks and then there's like it it takes it it takes its time so much the next morning they're all waking up with headaches and it's the rain they're trying to remember what happened and they gradually realize their kids are missing and it's so horrifying to read because it doesn't it's not like it just informs you. It's like you're watching a horror movie and yeah, someone I'm gonna is just have to reread waking that, up. Yeah, because that's just hits. Uh, it's children's re- I, book. I remember reading that. <laughs> it's traumatizing. Good stuff. But yeah, I mean, I loved, you know, horror was important for me as a kid because it was just really viscerally reeling me in in those kind of moments. And they're just like, they find, they start stumbling upon a corpse as the couple other adults killed on the way out. And it's just like the kids have been kidnapped and they're going to be enslaved. And then you find out that the, the, the fox running that circus troupe is that younger fox from the first book and that he survived the snake attack, but it drove him nuts. So like that, you mm-hmm. know, obviously now as an adult, haha, this villain, this previous character obviously is a thing I've seen a thousand thousand times, 
But when I read these books, I hadn't seen it a thousand, thousand times yet. So that blew my mind. Continuity. Yeah. It also was great. Right? The um, the TV show, he, uh, his name is Slagar in the uh, third book. He went by a different name in the first one. Uh, he is voiced by Tim Curry in the TV show. Right. And That's it awesome. was just. Who better? That just adds to it. In case Tim you Curry weren't, in case better. anyone in the audience wasn't hooked on getting to the show, Tim Curry's in it. That, honestly, that's all you need right there as as a recommendation. Yeah, uh, yeah. So yeah, that was and Madame Mayo was a uh, yeah. They got into like the South and they met a couple new characters and that was fun. But yeah, so that was that was probably my favorite. Okay, what, what were your, my, your favorites? Mine's, among mine's all these kind books? of a tie, but they both include the uh, character of Martin the Warrior. That being Moss Flower, the second book. And Martin the Warrior, which is... So Mossflower is the prequel to Redwall that shows when Martin... Right, that's the second book. Yeah, yeah it's the right. second one, the prequel, where Martin got to Redwall. Uh, there he... There's a different castle there before Redwall called Castle Cotier. And there Martin meets a bunch of rebels. And they have to team up and fight the uh, Queen uh, Zarmina. Zarmina Green Eyes, which is just a great... That's such a I love great that. villain he, name. Like, yeah, Sarmina. He has admitted to that. Like, yeah, he took Sar from Russian history and then added Mean, because she's mean. That's just that's just yeah. a wonderful <laughs> kid's villain name, Sarmina. Sarmina. Yeah, I wish, uh, if I and, thought I would get terrified. away with it, like, I would her, name a cat that. Like, it's, it's one of those cases to where the villain beats the hero, and then the hero has a falling arc, and then he has to get back up on his feet and then get his magic sword. And she right, Sarmina's basically the Bane. hell out of him. <laughs> Sarmina looking Sarmina basically looking back is just Cersei, basically. That's that's basically who kind Sarmina of if, is. if Cersei was given a sword. Yeah, that's Sarmina. <laughs> pretty much. Um but yeah, so yeah, so you're yeah, you're into those backstory books. I'm, I'm into the backstory ones. books a lot because I think they do a lot of what like a lot of there's a lot of prequels that are like really good. There's also a lot of prequels that try a little too much. And True. uh Brian Jakes' prequels are not that. They do a really great job of uh, exploring more and just adding just adding more to that mythos behind like Martin the Warrior. Like Martin the Warrior was actually just kind of this dude who literally walked into this situation. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like in the sixth book, which is another one of my favorites, where he it, Martin is from this uh, tribe of cave people, or not, not cave people, cave mice. And he ends up captured by this Corsair, has to break free, and then has a really, really great tragic hero arc, which I would let people read rather than spoil. Because even now, I would just, I would not want to spoil what happens there, even though I kind of just did. But they do a really great, they do a really great job at just developing the mythology, sort of keeping that there, and not exactly explaining every single little detail, but explaining a lot where you really get a feel behind what was going on before Redwall was the big happy place. It, it reminds me of comic books in that way, that kind of jumping around in canon and filling in holes where you can. And like, yeah, Moss Flowers reestablished the mountain of Salamandastron. And there's, this, again, there's just this bits that stand out still as metal in my memory, like the Badger Lord there was called Boar the Fighter, and he bellows from the top of the mountain, you can hear him miles away, and he's got his forge where he's made Arthur Dane's dawn, yeah. basically, from the, from, the, from the falling star, and he, he goes like, down fighting like a hundred pirates it. at once. Yeah, it's just... Goes uh, out into battle, and just... then they're just like, he fought until he just couldn't breathe anymore. 
Yep, it's just wild. Like, and this was, I remember reading, like, the the later ones I was reading came out, like, just before the Lord of the Rings movies came out. So it was, like, very much that kind of, that kind of same rousing spirit I was, I was kind of catnip for at that age. Yeah. Uh, like, for sure. Typically when, like, uh, like, they were fighting in a large army of, like, pirates, but, and, like, typically when you be- beat the enemy leader... Uh, that means that you have a victory and you can pursue, but, like, basically what Bord did to that army probably caused them so much trauma that they just couldn't <laughs> pursue it anymore. Right, yep, he just, uh, he routed them. That was a, yeah. that, that's a heck of a he scene, I still remember it. So, yeah, so you have the kind of, you have the older generation of characters that are alluded to in, in, in prequel books. You have the kind of default present day established with the red wall matthias generation and then in between you start getting some books that establish kind of a the the, the like the mariel red wall bellmaker books kind of have like an in-between generation yeah yeah mariel red wall and bellmaker were uh i actually bellmaker is actually one of the ones i remember the least about but i remember a lot yeah of, i remember a lot of mariel of red wall because it was kind of it kind of feels at the surface very much a we need to have a woman warrior sure but she still gets to have like her own unique like skill set and stuff and she comes from a completely different place a completely new area and she i mean her her signature weapon i'll just say what it is she is marooned on a beach finds a rope ties it up in knots and then there's these seagulls that keep pecking at her so she starts swacking them with her with her tied up (laughs) rope so she names the um her new weapon Gullwhacker, and that's what she brings around. That rules, yeah, and it, yeah, it's for sure. It's like you know, even the fact that she, like both their names begin with the same letters, M A R, for Mary Ellen Martin. It's like mm, this is very much Lady Martin the Warrior. I get it, but she's not treated that way ultimately in the narrative because yeah, she has a very different backstory. I love that weapon. She gets her own uh, her own kind of again generation of followers, and her father is a is a character in his own right. I, I do. I do also love when he when he jumps back because you get characters that show up in different books. Like there's the the sea rat pirate character who kills Bor the fighter that we were talking about in that big battle outside Salamanistron in the second book in Mossflower. He uh, a younger version of him shows up in one of the much in Lord Brocktree, which is a book that takes place a generation before that. So we see him as a younger conniving pirate who's part of a larger yeah. army. So that stuff like that is really fun. There's one of the books. Is called Legend of Luke, which is about Martin the Warrior's dad, who they lived in some in some caves to the north, and they suffered like a really devastating pirate attack that killed uh, Martin's mom and Luke's wife. And so, Legend of Luke, like the first like third of it, is like Martin kind of like remembering that and going on a journey to find out what happened. And then the middle third is he hears Luke's story, and then like the rest of the book is like him dealing with that and going back to Redwall. So it has this kind of interesting meta structure to it and this really devastating story within a story like his luke story is just like 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 his just his wife gets murdered and he gets taken captive and all his friends get murdered and and then he dies yeah it's and yeah it's a it's brutal like he he ends up being best friends with this like traumatized slave who's been driven to violence and that's that's some of the more kind of intense storytelling Mm -hmm. like the ship gets like the ship that they're on gets like stuck between these two islands. It's like stuck yeah. in the middle of the air. That's a hell of an image. That's like a like a. That's a, the cover a, of that oh, book. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Like that big red book stuck between two rocks. That makes you read to find out what the heck happened there. Yeah, J- Jake's had a, had a had a knack for those kind of signature images to build stuff around. And I, yeah. I I also just I like the prequel stuff because it 
it forced an imagination on his part and it forced a certain kind of like what could have happened in this history and how could that develop in these these stories I've already established. And past a certain point, the last I remember the last few books in the series just kind of kept going forward chronologically for a while. And that yeah. was less interesting for me because it was just like all right, next generation, next yeah, generation, there, there was a lot similar of, archetypes. Yeah, there was a lot of uh, cycle that came on, especially after them. Mm-hmm. So, like, for a few of the books, you would follow along, like, Matthias's family up until a point where you would get the um, book called Long Patrol, which is about the Army of Hares, and you would get this huge battle that happens in that one, like it, which is called the um, Battle at the Ridge of a Thousand. And it's named right, after right. the number of casualties. <laughs> Yikes. Um, mm-hmm. so you, and then, yeah, after that, it basically follows along chronologically, uh, after Tagorong, which is book, like, right. know, 14 of 23, right. or 22, one of those. <laughs> Somewhere in there. It becomes very repeated. You know that there's going to be a home, a home arc and a quest arc. <laughs> the vermin might get into Redwall, but at the most, they'll probably just butt up against the wall and then have teapots thrown on their head or something. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it just... It does become very recycled, although there are a lot, there's there's quite a few entries in there that do bring in some interest to, like, finish reading them. Like, Tagrong, for example, is about an otter raised on the side of the vermin. I and do like that one, yeah. And he's basically a super soldier. Yeah, like <laughs> otters tend to be, exactly. Yeah. Uh, that that one was quite interesting. Right, and um, he has to question his loyalties. I remember that one, and there's like, yeah. I remember that one because, like, there's a lot of like spoilers i guess but like he's like his 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 villain dad you think is going to be the villain of the whole book and then he dies like a third of the way through yeah so that one that, that i remember that one having a twisty plot but yeah after that one i think is where yeah, yeah a lot of it gets there's like, but yeah there's a couple of ones that are still interesting enough that i've read through more than once like uh rackety tam for example is about a pair of scottish squirrel warriors who <laughs> are fighting a wolverine which is, who is also a cannibal. Like, this wolverine actually eats people on nice. page. Nice. Kiss books. <laughs> I approve. That, I think that that may have uh, eased me into reading A Song of Ice and Fire, honestly. <laughs> I like, again, like I was saying, it was, it, was, it was a huge gateway for me, Redwell. I think yeah. it, it definitely planted the seeds same, that, same that grew later. I was uh-huh. just like, oh, this guy gets his head cut off with a shield? Huh. Gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> Gnarly indeed. Yeah, the, of course, the whole series isn't perfect by any stretch. There's, like, only one book where you get, like, a completely good-ish, quote, vermin. Mm-hmm. And that's in, like, book eight of 22, so it's not that far in. And a lot of them do get really repetitive. There's um, There's one where they go to an ancient abbey that was, like, everyone was driven out by a plague. You don't actually right, that's, um, you don't actually get Lone that much Hedge, right? Yeah, Loam Hedge. Right. You you don't actually get like uh, you don't actually get much info on that place really. You they just kind of go there, complete the mission that they had, and then they got to go back. And it's just a little underwhelming. Uh But yeah, it's Certainly something that, there's certainly things in there that could be patched up a little bit with changes to the TV series, but as a whole, I hope that it keeps what's important to Redwall, which is a sense of going out, finding something, coming back home, and having one of those really, really huge trifles that they always have. (laughs) (laughs) What What could possibly be better? Yeah. But 
Yeah. As for the TV series, it looks like they're they're getting a good crew for animating it. The uh, main guy, I believe his name is Patrick O'Hara, did the film Over the Garden Wall, which I haven't seen, but the animation looks really pretty. So, and as far as I know, I think he's actually read Redwall. Well, that's a positive for sure. Which, yeah, that would be a total positive. And with the uh, really, really cool animation that I've seen for Over the Garden Wall, I can definitely see that applied to Redwall. And especially like with Mossflower Wood and mm-hmm. like Salamidastron, you can really go places with animating all that stuff and all that imagery. Yeah, I, uh, I, I still have such a fondness for, for these books, I think, because... In, in the same way that, like, I remember watching the, like, Indiana Jones movies as a kid or Star Wars as a kid and realizing that decisions were being made because there were such, such specific things happening that I was like, wow, like, I could sense people and sense thoughts. And, like, yeah. the Redwall was, like, early that for me where it was it was so distinct and there were such passages that stood out so much to me in memory, like, when the kids get kidnapped in and Madame Mayo or a lot of a lot of the great battle scenes or that, that yeah, stuff the when Board the Fighter shows up in Moss Flower. The characters doing things, even like minor characters like um when Methuselah is killed by a chicken hound in book one, or yep. when um Cornflower sees the sees Clooney coming up the wall. Instead of like going to go shout for help, she's got this big pot of stew that's just fresh <laughs> and hot. So she just lugs it over the side of the wall and drops it on the <laughs> drops it on the rats. That gets them out Absolutely. of there real quick. And it was, like, as you say, you know, a lot of it is very, is, you know, morally simplistic stuff because it is written for, for a kid's audience and you yeah. don't want struggles that are just going to go over their head or bore them. But it's, it's, it's so, it's so vivid that it, it gave me something to chase into more complicated territory, if that makes sense. Yeah, it gave I, me, I think it gave it me the tools me of the too. things I love and from there I could go forward. And I, I I'm always going to love it for that. Yeah, for all that I love Revolve 4, the last book is something that I still haven't read. Uh, because mm. it was actually published after the passing of Brian Jakes, and it's, which is the reason why they haven't done the uh, the last audiobook for this one, is because Brian Jakes narrated the audiobooks, except for except for one of them. He did not narrate Salamandastron, and I don't know why. <laughs> but um, yeah, you can probably guess as to why I haven't read that last one yet. Uh, same here yeah <laughs> I, I but uh <laughs> I, I intend to yeah. soon maybe if i uh reread the whole series as the movie and tv show come out because that's how they're that'll be the excuse that's how they're doing it i'll go straight from red wall all the way down to real crew and then i'll be like it is done it is done it is accomplished <laughs> i look for i look forward to your thoughts on that oh yeah I'll definitely be tweeting it out. My um, my account is about to switch from being a Song of Ice and Fire account to a Redwall account, and none of you are ready Perfect. for it. I'm sorry. It's going to be a very smooth transition. We'll be so into it. Oh, yeah. So I think that's going to wrap us up for our conversation on Redwall. Thanks so much for coming on, Mike. I was looking forward to this as soon as you uh, proposed this idea to me, and I had a great time. So thank you so much. I'm glad I was reminded that we both love this topic because I, it's something I've been itching to uh, talk about with someone. And I know there's a few people in the fandom who know about Red Ball. I, I see you guys there. I see you. You're going to love this episode. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And I'm just glad to actually get to talk about it for a while. And yeah, it's been really great. Thanks for having me. Of course. So where can people uh, find you online? I am on Twitter at Micah underscore of Clark. I am a co-host for the Planetos podcast. Uh, we are doing things on there we are working on 
a new episode now since Travis is on break currently. And other than that, I'm not really much of anywhere else social media wise. I'm in a couple of discords where uh, I'm in the Radio Westeros Discord and in the uh, Not a Slack and Girls Got Canon Discord. And you would see me around there if you're in those places. But generally, I just do either analysis posts on Twitter or I do shit posts. One of the two, depends on the day. Both at once sometimes. But yeah, sometimes, obviously, yeah. yeah check, check out Micah on Twitter. And as always, folks, you can rate and review us on uh, iTunes and Spotify, wherever you find your podcasts. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastasoiaf. You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com. Our next uh, guest host episode coming up is going to be uh, with our friend Shiloh, which is going to be great. We've been looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to be talking all about kind of the topic of medievalism in A Song of Ice and Fire. It's going to be a great time talking about uh, how this series relates to history and the work Shiloh has done in that regard. So thanks again to Micah for coming on. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we will see you next week.